0: Why don't we just start with a word of prayer? Good to see everyone that's here. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our on our time this morning. Father, we do thank you for your kindness to us, uh, that you have reached into each one of our lives and plucked us out of darkness and bondage to sin and condemnation, and you have... Uh, cleansed us through christ and his sacrifice you have granted us repentance and faith in him we thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself and we have peace with you through our lord jesus christ we revel in the free favor that we enjoy now before you and that even all of our sins have been paid for and and do not sever our relationship with you and uh, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the fact that we are indwelt by your Spirit, and that's that's why we're here, is because He has united us to Christ, and that we love Him, and we want to worship and serve Him, and we give you all the glory, even as we gather again on this Lord's Day. And uh, we pray for our time uh, this day, beginning now, as we are going to dive into your Word and study the books of Jonah and Micah and We ask that you would wash us with the water of your word, that you would renew our minds, that you would sanctify us by your truth, and that we would enjoy just a rich time of fellowship around your word, uh, even as we uh, later head into the corporate worship. And we pray your blessing on the whole day, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, well, you can see where we're at in the class. We are making our way through the Minor Prophets now. We are in Jonah and Micah this morning. Over here we have Sam and Grace class, um, and they're here. Yeah, We've been talking about you the last several weeks. They're here. He's a, a candidate for the Associate Pastor position, so feel free. Please do go and talk with them after. Introduce yourself. This Sunday is really about them. Uh, Just getting to know some of us, and then next week he's going to minister to us. And so they have two children, little Iris, who's one, right? And Asaph, who's two and a half, and they're over in the children's ministry, but you'll see them as well. So glad to have you guys. Thanks. We've been hanging out through the weekend, so um, for me, it's like old hat, but um, good to have you guys at church. Okay, well, we're going to dive into Jonah and Micah this morning. We're going to start with the book of Jonah. And uh, just some introductory matters here. Some interesting things about Jonah. One is, who wrote it? There's a sense in which we don't know for sure. The book of Jonah is about the prophet Jonah. Of course, it never says, it's not a book of oracles, per se. Chapter 2 is an oracle. That, of course, uh, comes from Jonah. But the fact that the book is about Jonah means that We don't exactly know whether it was written by Jonah or not. It seems likely that it was, but not necessarily something that we can be 100% certain about. But in terms of Jonah himself, he's identified as Jonah, son of Amittai in the first verse of the book. We know more about him because he's mentioned Unlike so many of the other prophets, he's actually mentioned one other time in the Bible. So actually, if you would turn to 2 Kings 14, verse 25, this verse starts, uh, he, and the he there is Jeroboam II. And we've talked about him multiple times. He was the king that ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel during a time of great prosperity and power. And so, it says of Jeroboam the second, He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of, of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hepher. So, there we see that he was a figure who was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the days of the great... Uh, Israelite king, great in the sense of worldly greatness, not before God, um, Jeroboam II, and that he was from a place called Gath Hefer, which we don't know too much about. So that's a little bit about him. It places him, you know, early on among the prophets in the 8th century BC, and remember that would be the 700s. So that's a little bit about The authorship, again, we don't know exactly, but in terms of Jonah himself, about which the book is, that's a little bit of his background. The dates, either during or after the reign of Jeroboam II, you know, depending if it was written by Jonah himself, it would have been during that period. Or if it was written by someone else about Jonah, then perhaps after the 8th century BC. And then uh, just briefly about the recipients. Obviously, as I indicated earlier, this book would have been at least in the first instance intended for the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, most likely, especially if it was written by Jonah. And so it would have had its primary force to those citizens of the northern kingdom of Israel during this time of great power and prosperity and territorial expansion during the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay, so it's a little bit of the introduction. Something about the genre, this book, there has been a lot of question. Was Jonah written as true history or not? That's a a legitimate question that people have asked about the book. And many scholars, some even evangelical scholars, have come to the conclusion that no, it wasn't intended to be written as a true historical story, but rather as some kind of fictional story with a sort of parabolic lesson to it, right? And largely, this is because of the obvious. Because when you read the book, it's difficult to swallow. No pun intended, right? That Jonah is said to have been swallowed by a large fish and spit up onto the shore three days later alive. And so many people have read that and said, well, look, this is fantastical It's unrealistic. Of course, it didn't happen. And if you're an evangelical and you say that, well, then you have to argue that the author never intended it to be read as a historical account, but rather just as a fictional story with, like Jesus' parables, with a spiritual lesson that it's communicating. But there are reasons, good reasons, to read Jonah as true history. One is that Jonah is identified in 2 Kings, like we saw, as a real man, a real prophet, so he himself is at least a historical figure. Second, the book doesn't really fit into any other genre. It's not really a parable. It's not, it doesn't really fit the characteristics of a, of a mythical story or something of that nature. The only genre it really fits comfortably in is historical narrative. And the only reason you would say otherwise is if you just don't want to believe that it was true. Also, and perhaps most compelling of all, is that Jesus seems to have treated it as a historical story. So, in fact, let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 through 41. And if someone would read those verses, Matthew twelve forty through 41. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew twelve forty and 41, if someone would read those. For just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. All right, so of course, those scholars that want to argue that, that are evangelical, and want to argue that Jonah was never written, they're just going to say, well, Jesus just appealing to the characters of the story. But really, when you look closely at this, it, it's really very difficult. It's impossible, really, to interpret him as referring to Jonah and the men of Nineveh just as fictional characters. I mean, he says that he speaks of them as being there on the final day of judgment and condemning the current generation because at least they, uh, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. So, and something greater than Jonah is here. All of that indicates that Jonah really existed, that he really did the things written in the book of Jonah, and that Jesus is affirming that. So unless you're going to reject Jesus' own view of the book of Jonah, you have to affirm that it really is true a true historical account. And then, finally, when you think about the main reason why you would reject Jonah, because, you know, the story includes this fact, seemingly fantastical account of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and spit up three days later alive. Or also the fact that when he preached to this great pagan city of Nineveh, they all repented from the king on down to the livestock. They put sackcloth on the livestock. And, you know, could that really have happened? Well, when you start asking those, could that really have happened question, Well, if you're going to assume that miracles don't happen, that supernatural things don't happen, then yeah, it couldn't happen. But if the God of the Bible does exist, the one who created the universe with a word in the beginning, then of course such things are not impossible, for nothing is impossible with God. right? So, you really have to... The interpretation of Jonah as being a fictional story of some sort I think reflects largely just an anti-supernatural bias. But if you get rid of that, and you just accept the Bible at face value as telling you the truth about God, well then, there are lots of miracles in the Bible that are at least as fantastic, if not more, um, that we know are being told to us as true history. Okay, so that's a little bit about the genre of Jonah. Something about the historical background that I think makes Jonah pop a little bit and helps us understand what's going on. First. Um, this, as I mentioned, was a period of unprecedented prosperity for the northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam the Second Kings, we read Jonah was right in the middle of all this. He had prophesied to the nation that they were going to have this, enjoy this territorial expansion. So you can imagine, you know, Jonah is an Israelite nationalist. You know, <laughs> he he is for God's covenant people He has prophesied on behalf of God that they're going to expand their territory, right? So he's right in the middle of this unprecedented prosperity in the northern kingdom. And perhaps he's anticipating that this prosperity is going to come with national revival, right? We can't be sure on that, but perhaps. Then, the Assyrians, who are they? Well, they are the great superpower at the time, in that part of the world, lurking on the northeastern boundary of the nation of Israel, right? And they're very powerful, um, and their presence uh, falls like a shadow upon all the uh, nations in that region, and, uh, and Israel would be no exception to that. The capital city of the Assyrian Empire was Nineveh, and the Assyrians were known as being notoriously wicked, and notoriously brutal to those that they conquered. In fact, we get a little taste of it. If someone would read, if someone would turn to Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and read those verses. And Nahum is an oracle written uh, to and about the city of Nineveh. It's a judgment oracle against Nineveh. We Remember, we looked at Obadiah. Obadiah is a judgment oracle against Edom. Well, Nahum is largely a judgment oracle against the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, if someone would read Nahum 3, 1-4, through 4, you're going to have to peel those pages of your Bible apart. They may have never been opened before. But if someone would read those verses. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Yep. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the body, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whoring and peoples with her charms. Okay, so not a pretty picture of Nineveh, is it? (laughs) They're described as a great, mighty nation, flashing shields... Spears, charging horses, and they were. They were a mighty empire. They were the you know the Babylon of that day or the the Persia of that day. Uh, They conquered, and whenever they conquered, they were described as a bloody city full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. Wherever they went there were heaps of corpses and dead bodies without end. So there they are on the north side of Israel. They're the great superpower the looming enemy of God's people, more wicked than Israel, even. And so how do you think that Jonah felt about the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire? They were the great enemy. They were, you know, Jonah would have been uh, afraid of and had a hostility and animosity toward the Assyrians as cruel and godless pagans who opposed and threatened God's people out of the north. And indeed, about 30 years after Jonah uh, ministered, the Assyrians did come down and invade and destroy this northern kingdom and take them away into exile. So it was a valid fear. And so that's the background to this book of Jonah. And it helps you to understand a little bit of why Jonah did what he did and and helps you to the oral or this book to pop a little bit when you think about this. Now, let's just look at what's in the book for a second. So if you would turn to the book of Jonah, if you haven't already, and turn to Jonah chapter one, we're not going to read the whole book, but we'll read portions of it. Chapter 1, God commands the prophet Jonah to go and prophesy to Nineveh. But he refuses, and he takes a boat to Tarshish, which if you think of the Mediterranean Sea, and Jonah's over here on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, Tarshish is all the way over here. It's about as far away from, you know, Assyria and Israel as he could get. So he's just booking it, hightailing it to the farthest place he could think of. So it says... Jonah 1, 1-3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here's a man refusing to do what God wants him to do, Because he simply cannot believe what God is asking him. He's assuming that if he's going to prophesy to Nineveh, that it's because God wants Nineveh to repent. And He doesn't want Nineveh to repent. He wants them to fall under the judgment of God, and so he flees. But God, in the rest of the chapter, resists the boat with a storm. And Jonah tells the sailors, he admits that he's the cause of the storm. He tells them to throw them into the sea. They throw him into the sea. The sea immediately becomes calm. Jonah is sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. And the Lord, not to harm Jonah, but to save Jonah, sends a great fish down to snatch him out of the bottom of the sea. And he is preserved alive in the belly of the fish. And so we read in the last verse of the Chapter, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, Jonah is described as praying to the Lord from the belly of the fish and thanking the Lord for saving him from perishing in the sea. So let's read this oracle, this poetic or you might call it a psalm that he that he sings from the belly of the fish to the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, and out of my distress, out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, and the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. You can see him cast in the ocean, and the waves are crashing over him. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight as he's sinking down into the blackness of the sea. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Something has happened. He's rescued. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. You can imagine him sinking into the seaweed, right? Or by the way, that's where great whites go, so you don't want to ever go there. <laughs> I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me Forever. And he, so he's picturing himself as, as he's sinking into the sea, as descending into the, into the realm of the dead, into Sheol. And he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And how did he do that? Through the fish, right? When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, there you have, he prayed to God for salvation as he was sinking down. He had told the sailors to throw him in, but he thought better of it If he was sinking. And as the seaweed is wrapping around his head, and his life is ebbing away, the Lord answered his prayer saved him and he praises God for saving him right he recognizes that he didn't deserve it that he was a sinner that he'd been rebelling against God but he thanks God for saving him out of his steadfast love and that's actually critical because it's God's salvation of Jonah that then serves as a contrast and exposes his own hypocrisy as he protests against God saving the Ninevite later on all right so the fish spits Jonah out on dry land at the end of the chapter, verse ten, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And that brings us to chapter three. Well, in chapter three, God says, you could picture Him picking up Jonah, wiping the seaweed from off his face, saying, "Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against and preach to the city." So let's try this again, my dear prophet. Right, and so that's what we read. In Jonah 3, 1-5, through 5, let's read that. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, there's so many interesting literary features of this book. I can't get into all of them, but one of them is uh, that that verse is almost a replica of the first verse. So that... It really highlights the fact that God was reiterating this was round two, in other words. And it was going to go differently than round one. And Jonah does it. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. By the way, that that language of arise is in stark contrast to in the first verses of the book, you see he goes onto a ship, he goes down into the belly of the ship, and he goes down... It's all down. And here he arises, and he goes to Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. It's a massive city. And he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he makes, he makes this the most unseeker-friendly <laughs> sermon of all time. Basically tells them they're going to be judged. That's what he's hoping. But to his dismay, the people of Nineveh believed God... They called for a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. And the rest of the chapter emphasizes the depth of their repentance. That all the way from the king on his throne, the emperor of the superpower of that day, all the way down to the livestock. It says... Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." So this is an unbelievable repentance. And you can imagine how Jonah felt about this. In fact, when you get to the next chapter, you see, because verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do them, and he did not do it. Jonah was faithful to God. He preached his sermon. God, They repented. God saved Nineveh. By the way, just as he had saved Jonah. And Jonah storms out of the city with a thundercloud over his head. So, verse 1, but... Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally You see the little footnote below in the Hebrew, it can be translated, It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He thought God had done wrong. So like we always do when we think that we've perceived injustice, we get angry. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I tried to prevent this, Lord. I knew you would do this. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were going to do this, Lord. And you did it. You spared these wicked pagan Ninevites. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord asked the provocative question, Do you do well to be angry? All right. Now, The rest of the chapter really shows us how God uses this plant. Just as he had appointed a fish, he now appointed a plant. And the plant grows up over Jonah as he's waiting outside the city to see what the Lord will do with it, if the Lord might go back and destroy the city as he hoped. And this plant grows up over him. And Jonah delights in the plant. He loves this plant because it was covering him and giving him shade. And then God destroys the plant. He appoints, just like he appointed a fish and appointed a plant, he appointed a wind to destroy the plant. And Jonah's angry. He's angry that God destroyed this plant. Here we go again, God. And God ends the book by using the plant and Jonah's reaction to its destruction as an object lesson to expose Jonah's hypocrisy. So it says... Very interesting. Many have pointed out that Jonah sort of ends the way that the parable of the prodigal son ends, where you just you end with the words of the father pleading to the older son, but you never hear what the older son says back, do you? And that's sort of the point, is that the question was left with the Jews. What were they going to do when confronted by this parable? And and this book ends in the same way that the book of Jonah is confronting the reader. Are they right to desire God's judgment against the pagan, wicked, those outside of Israel, when God had been so merciful to them, and when they weren't, after all, the owner of the human souls that they so abhorred? And so this sort of highlights for us something of the purpose and the message of Jonah. What can we say about this? Well, first of all, I think the purpose of the book is really to... Confront in a sophisticated way with an extended argument here, to confront his own covenant people about perhaps their own misconceptions about themselves, about him as God, and about salvation. And he's instructing them in how they should be thinking about these things. And the message that he's giving them is essentially, I think, twofold. One, he's confronting their pride, their self-righteousness, that, you know, as His covenant people, well, they deserve to be saved by God. It was right for God to save them. They were His covenant people, after all. But they didn't think that God should save those outside the covenant community, because they were wicked. Well, this was the days of Jeroboam II. Were, Were they righteous? No, God had saved them despite their idolatry and despite their wickedness, right? He'd been so merciful to them. Even now, it was a time of prosperity and expansion in the nation. And they were happy that God was saving them, just like Jonah was happy that God had plucked him out of the sea. But when it came to those outside, they had no compassion. They didn't think God should save them at all. And so he's confronting this kind of pride and self-righteousness in his people. And he's indicating that just as he had in his sovereign grace saved them, it wasn't because they were better than anyone else, or more worthy than others, but it was all of grace, right? And then to confront their sort of Israel-centric mindset that they probably had in that day, that Jonah certainly reflected, and he was a prophet after all, to assure them that don't forget, I am the God of all humanity. And that he could extend his saving grace beyond the boundaries of Israel to the nations as well. So many have looked at the book of Jonah as this very provocative harbinger of things that were to come. The northern kingdom would soon collapse and they'd be taken away into exile and they'd be looking for the days when the, prophets, the prophecies of redemption would come through the Messiah, And this was sort of a harbinger that when that day came, the gracious salvation that he would give to his people would also spill over the bounds of his old covenant people Israel and be extended to the nations as well. And so many have seen this as sort of a, uh, a foretaste of the extension of salvation to the Gentiles as well as the Jews that we see in the New Covenant. Okay, so any questions about Jonah so far? Yes. When Jesus says that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Yes, you had to bring that seems- up. I didn't write that in here, did I? Oh, what's that talking about? Yeah, that's a that's a very uh, interesting. Okay. That, I think that is the one besides the text that we already read where he says, you know. Um, someone greater than Jonah is here, right? That passage that I already read. The only other time that Jonah, the book of Jonah is referenced, I think is that, is that, uh, that reference, Melinda. What, what I think is going on there is that he sees in Jonah a sort of a, a type, perhaps, or you might say a, a correspondence of some sort between Jonah going down, this prophet of God into the belly of the fish for 3 days and then coming up and out and ministering proclaiming the gospel and seeing people repent i think he's sees in that a an intended type that that would sort of project forward a picture of what he would do that he would go down into the grave the ultimate prophet of god and come out after 3 days to proclaim the gospel and that even the nations would respond. So I think that that is the best way of understanding it. Some kind of typological picture that he sees that, that you know, really thank goodness that Jesus told us that because I wouldn't have seen that in it, right? <laughs> I mean, but once he says it, you can perceive the correspondences, but yeah, it's a very interesting um, reference. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I just neglected to put that in. Yeah. Any Anyone else? Any other questions? Okay. Yeah. Ashton. So Jonah, in his uh, psalm, or his psalm, yeah. talks about his prayer reaching the temple of God. Yeah. So is he saying that as he's floating down, he kind of is regretting throwing himself into the sea and he's pleading for God to save him? Or. I believe so. I believe that's what he's indicating is that... Because obviously he had asked them, he had ordered them to throw him into the sea, right? He's still caught in his anger. And yet here he says that his salvation through the fish was, was in response to his crying out to God, right? So I think that's the picture. It says he's sinking down, right? And he's describing the waves clothing over him and the seaweed wrapping around his head as he's reaching the bottom... He's crying out to the Lord. And of course, like every Israelite, where would he have perceived the Lord to be enthroned and to hear the prayers of his people? You know, in the temple. Just like when Solomon built the temple and consecrated it, it said, You know, when your people go into exile, when they sin, may they cry to this house and you hear them from this house, right? So, because it was a place of atonement, a place of sacrifice, he pictures God hearing him from the temple and sending the fish, you know. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, Ben. I've heard that people run a line, a line of thought like this, like, you know, God promised judgment on Nineveh, in you know, 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown, and then he relented of that. And I've seen in that, like, some reason from that that maybe, you know, hell is not as, won't, you know, God will relent of future judgment or... Like, how would you respond to that? That's right. Yeah. I've never heard that argument. I mean, I don't think that... I guess I would just say I don't think see how that would be a necessary or even appropriate extrapolation from this. It seems that the, the issue here is, you know, God, as He's described in the New Testament, often responds to... Um, is often described as responding to people when they repent and granting them mercy. And, and so, here it's the Gentile nations. But I don't think it... You know, I think like you would probably answer the same way. It speaks nothing of the final judgment, right? Yeah. Um, of course, every judgment in the Scripture is a harbinger of the final judgment. But the point in this life is that if you repent, you can escape both temporal judgment, if God... Because God is always quick to show mercy and if you repent and believe in Christ you can escape the final judgment Yeah, so yeah so I don't to to see in it the idea that God will feel bad about judging people in hell and will and will go relent and and release them I think would be something that is not at all I mean you could draw that argument from every time God relents you know in the scripture but yeah and please, when you hear it, language of God relenting in the Old King James, it would even use they use the word repenting. Just that He turns. Don't think God God was waiting to see what would happen. He didn't know what would happen, but when He saw, then He responded. You know, he's being described in human terms. He knows the end from the beginning, right? But uh, but He descri- He's described in the Scripture by His own desire. As responding to human any the the least movement of repentance, he's always quick to forgive and willing to show mercy to those who repent, and that that too is a uh, an element of the message that I think maybe I didn't highlight, but yeah. Okay, well let's move on before anyone else asks me harder questions than that. <laughs> All right, introductory matters. The book of Micah. So this is the next book chapter 1, verse 1, tells us who the author is, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. He is also referred to in the book of Jeremiah, so he's one of these, uh, one of the few prophets that is mentioned in other places. I should say one of the few minor prophets that is mentioned in other places in the Bible. His dates tells us, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So while he prophesies regarding both the capitals of the northern and southern kingdoms, he himself lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. But he was given oracles concerning both the north and the south. And that tells us as well that he too was living in the earlier days, the days when the southern kingdom was The northern kingdom of Israel was still around. They hadn't yet been conquered. So we're talking about the 700s BC. His ministry would have preceded, it seems, just from the list of kings. Isaiah ministered during the days of Ahaz and Hezekiah. But it seems that Micah's ministry would have preceded, slightly preceded, and then overlapped with the ministry of Isaiah. And uh, then, of course, sadly, the northern kingdom fell. In the middle of Micah's ministry. So if, if these are his date ranges somewhere in there, right in the middle of it is when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. So that's a little bit of the background. And who he was ministering to? Well, Morasheth, as I mentioned, just the kings that are listed indicate that he lives in the southern kingdom of Judah. Morasheth is a, as far as we can tell, a town quite a way south of um, Jerusalem which shows he's he's way down in the southern kingdom, right? Even though that's where he was from, he may have ministered in the city, the capital city, we don't know. But like Jeremiah, before him, but before Jeremiah, he has a similar message to Jeremiah. He's really warning Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, of the fall, the, the coming fall of Jerusalem. Even though he also spoke to the northern kingdom as well. Um, so he's... You know, one of these prophets who is predicting the, the judgment of God upon Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem that would eventually occur in five eighty-six BC. Okay, so a little bit of introductory there. A couple of interesting issues. One is Micah four one through five. If you if you turn there quickly, you'll see that if you read that oracle, four one through five, it sounds very familiar. And the reason is because it is almost identical, almost word for word, with the oracle contained in Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And so, I would leave you to look it up, but you could see that you have almost the exact same oracle, down to the very wording in Micah 4 and Isaiah 2. And what that shows is that while there are some differences between the two texts, the endings are slightly different, it's unlikely that God gave the exact oracle to both prophets. Is that possible? Yes. But probably what happened is that one prophet cited the oracle of another prophet. So then the question is, you know, who cited who? And most scholars believe that because Micah was probably a little bit earlier than Isaiah, though they inter-overlapped, that perhaps it was Isaiah who was citing a prophet a prophecy or an oracle of Micah. So that's one interesting thing. Another interesting thing is just this incredible oracle in Micah 5, 1 through 5. It's clearly a messianic prophecy. So if you turn over there uh, to Micah 5, you you know because we read it like every Christmas, right? It's a messianic prophecy. It's it's describing the coming future Davidic king, the Messiah But strikingly, it tells us where he would be born. And that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, which was the birthplace of the greatest Israelite king, or uh, Davidic king to that place, the first Davidic king, David himself. He was born in Bethlehem. And and what was interesting about Bethlehem is it's not like a bustling metropolis, right? It's more like saying, the Messiah would be born in Anderson. You know, it's like, that's good, but... Oh, really? Anderson. A small little country town. Well, that's sort of what Bethlehem was. And what's interesting is that Jesus' mother, Mary, and his legal father didn't live anywhere near Bethlehem. Bethlehem's way down in the south. They were from Galilee, you know, separated from Judah in the south by the whole region of Samaria, way up in the north. And so, you, you, when you read the New Testament, there is this strange conundrum. Like, how? If Mary is going to be the mother of Jesus, how is he going to be born way down in Bethlehem? What would have to happen? Well, Luke 2, 1-7 through 7 explains what happened. And it had to do with a particular emperor coming to the throne, and his particular taxation policy that led to Joseph at that exact time during her pregnancy having to travel down to Bethlehem and the time for her labor coming at that exact time so that He's born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet Micah had predicted. So that typically when people who didn't know Jesus very well, they thought he was from Nazareth, when they didn't, may not have even known that he'd actually been born way down in the south in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. So it's another striking thing about this book. Alright, an overview of the book. Chapters 1 and 2. And so if let's actually turn, turn to Micah 1.1. 1, 1. These two chapters are oracles against oracles of judgment against Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and, and Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Primarily, he tells us in chapter 1 that Samaria and Jerusalem will be destroyed in God's judgment. In chapter 2, he explains some of why that would happen. And what he indicates here is it will be because of injustice in society, social evils, false prophets that are tolerated and promoted. So let's read together this this portion of the book Micah 2 1 through 11. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. They think about it at night, and in the morning, they do it. Because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach thus they preach, or do not preach thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by, trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of uncleanness that destroys or the grievous destruction. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that destroys or the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. So you have a, an oracle of judgment in chapter 1, and then an explanation of why the judgment is coming here in chapter 2, because of rampant wickedness. But then, interestingly, at the end of the chapter as is often scattered throughout the judgment oracles of the prophets, you have a, an oracle of hope that there will be a remnant that is preserved. Verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So the Lord leading a, a remnant, of his people out into pasture. And it's a very striking picture because, you know, it makes you think, as a reader of the New Testament, of John chapter 10, right? And the Lord Jesus coming and leading his people out to pasture like, uh, like his flock, and he is the shepherd. Okay, that's chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, more judgment oracles, but this time against the wicked leaders of Israel and Judah. So as often happens, it's the nation as a whole, and then he'll turn to the leaders, you know, the prophets, the priests, the kings, and he pronounces judgment on them. Judgment upon the wicked rulers who oppress the people, and the false prophets who lead them astray. You know, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this, but um, you can see, as you if you skim through, uh, him turning to the leaders and announcing judgment upon them, then, though there's judgment now, like all the prophets, they look beyond that judgment and they see a time that's coming in the future when God will redeem His people in the last days, or the latter days. And that's what you have in chapter 4. This is the oracle that's exactly the same as the one in Isaiah 2. It says, chapter 4, 1 through 5, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears, into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift their sword against nation, neither shall there be learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is a very interesting prophecy, because obviously, there are many workers where God predicts the judgment of His people, and the judgment of the nations. But here we see that there is both Israel and some from the nations, who in this latter day will be saved. And so what you could, this is a common theme in the prophets I think, is that The wicked in Israel and the wicked in the nations will be destroyed, but there will be a remnant preserved, both from Israel and from the nations. And they will live and enjoy peace and prosperity under the rule of God, which I think ultimately is mediated through his Messiah, even though he's not mentioned specifically here. And that it will be a forever rule. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Alright, next as we continue moving through the book, You ask, how is he going to do this? Well, this is where you come to chapter 5. And the great oracle of the king that he's going to raise up. Right? So, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, just a little village, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, prophesied from of old. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This king is born. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. This is an exalted figure who shares in the very majesty of God, and they shall dwell secure. For he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. A, un- a, a worldwide king. This is how the oracle that we just read will be occur through the Messiah. Then, though he judge Israel now, you see another prophecy that a remnant will be saved down in verses seven to the end of the chapter. Now the last section of the book, six through seven, we return to oracles of judgment. So it goes negative again. And this this oracle is really uses language of the courtroom. God indicts His people, convicts them of wrong, and sentence them for breaking His covenant in chapter 6. Chapter 7, Micah the prophet laments over the wickedness of his people, but he waits for the salvation of the Lord. I'm not going to be able to read it, but you can see he you know, laments over the condition of his people, but he, he says, but I will wait upon the Lord. He's waiting for the salvation of God. And then he anticipates this future redemption which he describes again. So now we go up again at the end of the book and in the very end the book ends with these wonderful praise of God for his steadfast love. That even though Israel is so wicked God is going to redeem them and it will all be because of his own merciful character. So let's end with the last words of the book verses 18-20. through Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So, out of his faithfulness to his ancient promises, even his promise to Abraham, he would once and for all defeat the sin of his people. And of course, you know, that as you look through the lens of this prophecy, what do you see on the other side? But the cross, right? That's where this would happen. And so these words can be spoken of you, believer. God has cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. Right? He took Jonah out of there, but your sins stayed. He no longer... It's not that he doesn't know what you did... So that he's no longer holding it against you. Alright, the teaching of Micah and we'll end on this slide. Well, there's so much that could be said and there's so many common themes through all the prophets where I could just sit and reiterate the same themes again and again. But let me just touch on some things that really are distinctive to Micah. He talks a lot about the sins that the covenant community commits for which God will judge. And as You know, as we think, okay, well, who would be the sort of parallel to the covenant community, uh, the old covenant community? It would be the new covenant community. And so what I would argue is that we see in Micah warning of the types of sins that we can fall into as God's people as well. One is injustice, injustice toward people who are weak and vulnerable. We see that in Micah. God cares that we don't take advantage of the weakness of people within the community to to serve ourselves. Also, false teaching, which leads people astray. I know that never happens in the church and we never see that, but just in case, could draw that out. And then leaders, leaders who, like the leaders in Israel, abuse the people rather than serving them faithfully before God. So the book of Micah is a sober reminder of the types of sins that the the covenant community needs to beware of and identify and repent of. In fact, you say, well, God doesn't judge the New Covenant community. Well, remember the letters to the seven churches, right? There is temporal judgment upon the church. You know, God said, look, Ephesus, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand, right? So it's not to say that truly saved people will go to hell, right? (laughs) But it is to say that local churches, as they depart from God, as they fall into grievous sin and refuse to repent that God may bring temporal judgments upon that church. Alright, there's also a summary description of what God requires of his people that is pretty striking. Let's read Micah 6, 6-8. This is the passage you all know from Micah, right? Because you know the song, right? He has shown thee, O oh man, What is good and what the Lord requires of thee? Well, that comes from these verses. Look what he says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It sort of reminds you of Jesus telling the Pharisees, look, you're so diligent about your religious activity, you tithe even your spices in your cabinet, but you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, right? You neglect the weightier matters of the law, like mercy and justice, right? And here too he's saying, look, all of your religious activity means nothing. That's not what I want by itself. He's not saying don't offer sacrifices, but he's saying, look, that's not, by itself, that's not what I'm looking for, apart from a heart that does justice and loves kindness and that is humble before me, right? Then your sacrifices will be meaningful. And the same is true of us, isn't it? That God, it's a reminder to us that God is looking for not just external activity, but something internal in our hearts. Not just religious motions without righteousness, but justice, kindness, and humility before God. And then finally, it reminds us of God's redemption and how it is granted to wicked people, right? I mean, all these great oracles of redemption, they're promised to a people that were harlotrous, wicked. At a time in Israel when things had gotten really bad, and yet we see that God is gracious and merciful to those who deserve his judgment. Finally, just a couple of notes here about Micah in the New Testament. Micah is only cited two times in the New Testament. One is that prophecy about his birth, right? It's cited in Matthew 2, 5-7. Luke 2, 1-7 explains how the prophecy was fulfilled. It's also interesting that there is a, uh, another passage in Micah 7-6 where he's describing the wickedness of Israel. And let's just look at there very quickly. Micah 7, 6. He's describing the wickedness of his people. See if this language sounds familiar. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Ah, you recognize that language, right? Jesus told his disciples, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And he says, these are the things that are going to happen to you. Even members of your own household will rise up against you. And he lists these very things. He cites this text to say that the wickedness of people that they will experience against them will be akin to the wickedness that Micah saw in Israel in that day. So an interesting citation. um, And shows that some things never change. All right, well, feel free to come and talk with me after to ask questions. Um, But let me... Close us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word today. Lord, we thank you for the prophets. We know that we need this portion of Scripture so badly. It's It's a massive portion, a massive percentage of the Bible is the prophets. And we know that in your wisdom you've given it to us because there's so much that it reveals to us about you, about your justice and your mercy about the person and work of Christ through whom the prophets, the oracles of the prophets are fulfilled now and not yet. We thank you for the, the way it sobers us about sin and judgment, and the way it causes us to marvel over your mercy and your saving grace toward those who don't deserve it like us. We thank you that we are those who have seen what the prophets long to see the the days of fulfillment, the times of salvation in the latter days. Oh God, we think of how the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. That we have the privilege of knowing the great King of Micah 5 and being among those who enjoy the peace and prosperity of his rule. Oh Lord, let us revel in these things. We pray that they would dwell richly within us, that we would profit from them with knowledge of you, with love for you, repentance from sin, uh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.